uh, I was working with Spencer and his dog Murphy was with mm-hmm. us because he's the most important employee. Absolutely, he is. Employee of the month every month. <laughs> Murphy's the best boy, and I have my own dog. He truly is. So he's a tiny little, like, looks like a mix between a terrier and a poodle. He's probably got some extra stuff in there. He's just a little white puff. Yeah. But the, Murphy's fatal flaw is that he wants to be so close to you that he yeah. is frequently underfoot. And I was getting up, and I don't know how this tiny dog managed to move from next to me to at my feet at hyperspeed, but I spazzed out, shouted Murphy, and then did this, like, parkour fall (laughs) so that I fell in, like, a push-up position on top over this dog so that I didn't hit him. It hurt so much. Oh, no. And then I just looked at Murphy, and he just looked at me like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm shocked he didn't growl or freak out. Yeah. No, okay. So Tracy knows this because she came out to hang out with us. Um, Murphy growls when he's underfoot, not because he's angry, but because he doesn't want you to step on him. Yes. He's the point where my my, uh, constant, uh, I don't know, uh, call, I guess you can say, was – I'm getting up, Murphy. You you don't have to have any feelings about it. I know where you are, and it is not near my feet, Murphy. I'm getting up, and it's okay. (laughs) Which is very nice, because my response is usually, sweet boy, shut up. (laughs) Um, I love him so much, but... The fact that he just blinked up at me innocently, like, what you doing in that weird position leaning over me? And I was like, (laughs) there is no amount of Tylenol that is going to make this not hurt. (laughs) And given the situation, you'd make the same choice every time. I know it. Oh, 100%. That was the correct decision. But I had to talk to Murphy about how I need my wrists and I can't just do that all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, you're the second person this week to tell me a story about how they stood up and then somehow ended up falling down and their entire thought while falling was avoid the dog. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. It's going around. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everyone with the dog, be careful, I guess. Well, and as a clumsy being, (laughs) I can't rely on myself to just gracefully manage the situation no 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 no. grace goes out the window the second you start talking about anything related to being clumsy right so murphy still loves me and that's all that matters (laughs) genuinely that is all that matters if that dog ever decided he didn't like me i would be so devastated oh it would be the emotional kiss of death like yes there's no coming back from those feelings no and i as a person, do not require the approval of every dog. <laughs> I yeah. I know some people like all dogs inherently as soon as they meet them. I think all dogs are worthy of respect. <laughs> but I don't <laughs> like them all. I well, For the most part, if they jump all over me and push me down or like gnaw on me, I'm like, mm, okay. You know, I yeah. love you from afar. Mm-hmm. This dog in particular, I would jump in front of a bus for this dog. He's... Okay, I'm sure the the listeners are sick of both of us talking about Murphy, but you guys have to understand, I I have my own dog. I love Malcolm more than life itself. Malcolm is a good boy. He's a good boy. Murphy is a -a once-in-a-lifetime animal. Murphy is more emotionally in tune with humans than most humans. Mm -hmm. 
He's smart. He's clever. He's got a sense of humor. He's just a good dog. (laughs) Uh, That's how I like to be described, too. Smart, clever, and with a sense of humor. (laughs) And a good dog. No, 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 no. And Rowan Hall is smart, clever, has a good sense of humor, and is the goodest girl. Thank you so much. And and that's also Tracy Harrison. Smart, clever, and something else funny that is a a play on the goodest girl. (laughs) Did I just cash out of a joke before it even started? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a Oof. really hard bail. Oof. I'm sorry. I I don't want to minimize your goodness. It's it's a comment on my humor, not your ability to be the best person. That's okay. You spent like 10 minutes before we started recording complimenting me. So you get a really you get a good out there because you you showered me with compliments <laughs> already today. I was telling Tracy about how I was in another conversation and the entire theme of the conversation that was supposed to be about working stuff was actually about how Tracy is the best and obscenely talented and a ferociously good writer. Uh, And that was fun. I was like, oh, I got this. No one is as equipped to talk about how (laughs) awesome Tracy Harrison is as I am. I'm blushing. I'm blushing again. I don't blush. I don't have expertise in a lot of things, but I do have expertise in how awesome you are. What a day. Everyone get yourself a best friend like Rowan. Are you freaking kidding me? This is lovely. And this is Willing and Fable. Ooh, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history of mystery and Tracy Harrison that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support our show, please try checking out our merch. Mm. We've got a lot of cool offers. Speaking of merch, I have been messaged a couple requests for uh, Fuck It Up Buttercup t-shirts. Yep. Golly, we gotta we gotta work on those because I am very emotionally attached to that phrase. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. You already came up with some, I'll say, pretty ingenious design ideas that I love. Oh, thanks. So. You know who else is good at designing? (gasps) We're knocking out of the park today. It's Leah (laughs) at Greenleaf Geek, our longtime partner of the pod and maven of the TTRPG space. If you are in need of, in particular, dice, Mm -hmm. custom dice, just really well curated, very affordable dice, dice rolling trays, yes, resin, jewelry, Greenleaf Geek is your place to go. I was on her site today poking around, and I forgot how much I love her perihedrons. I was too. (laughs) (laughs) I was just checking, you know, sometimes you just have a moment, you're like, what is she, what's, what's new? What's new in Leah's shop? And... I need to get a set of perihedrons. Hey, if my sister is listening to this, stop listening. They are super cute perihedral dice with a little cat inside (laughs) of them. So if you have cat lovers in your life, they're the best dice. And I also feel like dice kind of behave in a cat-like manner. (laughs) That is such a good way to describe it. Because of the nature of gravity and, and physics... It does always feel like uh, today they could hate me or today they could be my best friend. So cats and dice feels right. (laughs) (laughs) We call those story dice when it's like it's a one or it's a 20. You get nothing in between. So if you need gear for your TTRPG games, head over to greenleafgeek.com or check out at greenleafgeek anywhere on all the socials. And when you do... 
Use code FABLE at checkout. That's F-A-B-L-E for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Or you can support our show by learning an ancient craft, such as forging a greatsword out of that mysterious metal that fell into your backyard that one day. But to each their own. No matter what you do, we're just glad to have you here. All right, friends, it's uh, it's Bermuda Triangle Part 2. Was it supposed to be a two-part episode? No. Did Tracy and I have an obscenely fun time reading radio transcripts? Yes. That was, I thought that was going to be such a bust. It was really fun. I had a really good time. It also made it feel so real to have it read out like that, as opposed to just reading the transcript in front of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, the Bermuda Triangle has really, <laughs> uh, subverted our expectations in every possible way (laughs) yeah at this point it probably is aliens and then eggs on my face (laughs) (laughs) all right tracy what are we talking about next so there are a lot of theories as to what's going on with the bermuda triangle before we get into the science and reality of it there's just one theory i had to share because i think it's funny and it's the (laughs) idea that the bermuda triangle is really just a time vortex hell yeah (laughs) <laughs> which if you've heard that uh, famous TikTok soundbite, it's from Watcher, um, which is uh, Shane and Ryan. And they're talking about the Bermuda Triangle. And Ryan says, you know, what if the Bermuda Triangle is just a bunch of time travelers? And Shane goes, what if? What if they are? And uh, I use that in my daily life all the time. Just what if? It has the same energy of maybe. So <laughs> let's talk about time vortexes. Albert Einstein proposed that the curvature of space could lead to the bending of light, and some theorists suggest that time itself is a fundamental aspect of nature. As such, it may also experience distortion based on location. The Bermuda Triangle is believed to be a location on Earth where the fabric of time is exceptionally thin, allowing travelers to provincially traverse it and emerge in an entirely different temporal dimension. This hypothesis gained credibility in 1970 when a pilot named Brew Gernon Jr., along with his father and friend Chuck Lafayette, was en route to Bimini Island in the Bahamas. During their flight, they encounter a peculiar elliptical cloud formation, which Gernon later dubbed the Electronic Fog, hovering at an altitude of approximately 500 feet above the ocean. Here is an excerpt of his story. Yes. Quote, Upon entering the cloud, we witnessed an uncanny spectacle. It became dark and black, without rain, and visibility was about four or five miles. There were no lightning bolts, only extraordinarily bright white flashes that would illuminate the entire surrounding area. The deeper we penetrated, the more intense the flashes became, so we made a 135-degree turn to the left and headed due south out of the cloud. The remarkable thing is that we did not come out of the storm 90 miles away from Miami as we should have. We had traveled through 100 miles of space and 30 minutes of time in a little more than three minutes. End quote. Awesome. So Rowan is making the correct face, (laughs) which is one of disbelief, distrust. Uh, What's the word? I'm sorry. Am I misunderstanding? He's saying they went 10 extra miles. That seems like a miscalculation, right? Yeah, he's basically saying, um, essentially, they went way further than had sh- than should have been possible in the time that they did it. <sighs> I hesitate almost to say this because 
because it may be misattributed, but like imagine being so confident in your own expertise and perfection and awesomeness. They're like, mm-hmm. you can't fathom making an error. And instead, the answer must be time travel. Right? Right? To be so confident in yourself. Okay. So I can go on and explain a little bit of what may have happened here. Yeah. Because now it's time for us to debunk the Bermuda Triangle. I know so far everything's been so clearly real and mysterious, but uh, now it's time to bring us back down to reality. It's still my least favorite part. (laughs) I know. Okay. So according to Boater Exam, quote, no theory has negated what Bruce saw, but there is a fascinating and detailed analysis explaining the science behind Bruce Gernon's flight. The report attributes his experience being due to a sunspot number of 84, scientists track solar cycles by counting sunspots, and a large solar wind, which created a disturbance of the magnetosphere and energy flux transfer. This occurs when a magnetic portal opens in the Earth's magnetosphere through which high-energy particles flow from the sun directly into the atmosphere. This caused not only his compass to go haywire, but can also account for the warping of the fabric of space he witnessed, end quote. I'm also not totally set on this being a real explanation. I I think it's interesting to track, hey, is this is this an area where there is a high level of radiation from the sun? Are there because we do know because of the uh, South Atlantic anomaly that radiation from the sun can cause technology to malfunction. We see that on the International Space Station, we see it in when we have to work about going high up into the the atmosphere. Technology can be impacted by this. Do I think that he caused a ripple in space-time? I'm not sure. Are ripples in space-time a thing? Yes, and that's where this gets tricky. Because you can take a thing that's real, that sounds like science fiction, which is ripples in space-time. Space is essentially a fabric, so when you bend it, you're bending space and time. The same way if you put a bowling ball in the middle of a, a bed sheet, it would weigh down in the center. That's what large planetary bodies are, are doing in space. Do I think... That there's scientific evidence to prove that you can fly across our world within our planet's atmosphere and orbit and somehow end up in a different temporal dimension? No, not necessarily. And that's where it loses me. That's my problem with some of these explanations is they'll take some things that are true and then push it to a point where now you've used enough technical jargon, everyone else thinks it's true too. I hate to be a jerk, but if you're going to claim to have time traveled, 30 minutes? Come on. Right? At least, you know, at least at least do the damn thing. Like go a year, go go 20, like 30 minutes. Come on, I time travel 30 minutes by accident if I take a nap. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Oh, I've done that. Accidentally skip ahead 2 hours into the future. Whoops. Wake up in a cold sweat. Yeah, like that was supposed to be a 20 minute lie down. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back to Wikipedia and our good friend Larry Cush. Because Larry Cush has his own personal Wikipedia, and it describes him as an American author, research librarian, and pilot. I just thought that was cool. An American hero. American hero Larry Cush. He is the author of the Bermuda Triangle Mystery, colon, Solved, which was published in 1975. That's so funny. The version that I found has a dash. (gasps) I wonder if they reprinted. Ooh, yeah. I also won't rule out that I'm wrong. No, Tracy, it must be time travel. <laughs> it's time travel. Oh, this is an example of the... Oh, the Mandela effect. Okay. 
Um, so in his book, Cush argues that Gaddis, who wrote some of the original writings on the Bermuda Triangle, uh, and a lot of people used Gaddis's writings in their subsequent writings, Cush argues that at best, those are unverifiable, and at worst, they're entirely falsified. <laughs> yes. So to quote Wikipedia, quote, Cush concluded that the number of ships and aircraft reported missing in the area of the Bermuda Triangle was not significantly greater, proportionally speaking, than in any other part of the ocean. (laughs) In an area frequented by tropical cyclones, the number of disappearances that did occur were, for the most part, neither disproportionate, unlikely, nor mysterious. So according to our beloved Wikipedia, quote, Cush concluded that the number of ships and aircraft reported missing in the area of the Bermuda Triangle was not significantly greater, proportionally speaking, than in any other part of the ocean. (laughs) Right. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because the ocean. Because the ocean. In an area frequented by tropical cyclones, the number of disappearances that did occur were, for the most part, neither disproportionate, unlikely, nor mysterious. (laughs) Furthermore, Berlitz and other writers would often fail to mention such storms or even represent the disappearance as having happened in calm conditions when meteorological records clearly contradict this. The numbers themselves had been exaggerated by sloppy research. A boat's disappearance, for example, would be reported, but its eventual, if belated, return to port may not have been. Like Rosalie. Mm -hmm. Some disappearances had, in fact, never happened. One plane crash was said to have taken place in 1937 off Daytona Beach, Florida, in front of hundreds of witnesses. However, no witnesses came forward. (laughs) The legend of the Bermuda Triangle is a manufactured mystery perpetuated by writers who either purposely or unknowingly made use of misconceptions, faulty reasoning, and sensationalism. End quote. I mean, yep. Yeah, exactly. You just you start poking into it and then it's like, oh, yep, yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. So it's it's just you can rationally explain it when you have all the information. And honestly, I'm crushed. I know. <laughs> I know. It's taking away some of the mystery in the world. But in some ways, it, it I find it good to debunk the things that you can debunk because then it leaves room for real genuine mystery that we haven't solved. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Ron's like, I just want the mystery. I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> i mean listen i have this podcast with you i clearly agree to an extent right, my emotions right. just don't like it <laughs> well we're going to continue debunking because in 1992 a british documentary aired on channel 4 in which they interviewed lloyds of london the insurance company that you mentioned earlier and that we saw referenced when you're talking about flight 19 and the path In this documentary, we learned that the number of ships which had sunk or been lost in the Bermuda Triangle was not above average. In fact, Lloyd's does not charge higher rates for passing through this area at all. (gasps) They concluded that the number of supposed disappearances is relatively insignificant considering the number of ships and aircraft that pass through on a regular basis. I'm sorry, but the fact that a company is not charging more when they totally could... I know. Really puts a hole in it. It does, right? I mean, the fact that it, and we'll get to this later too, but it's it's also not on the top 10 list of most dangerous areas to travel in the ocean. Well, no, because we all know the North Sea exists. <laughs> yes. Okay, but interestingly, there may be some truth to the claims that compasses don't work right in the Bermuda Triangle. Hmm. However, it's little less mysterious than it sounds. 
There's a magnetic line that runs through the Bermuda Triangle in which magnetic north and geographic north are aligned. Crossing this line can cause some strange readings, but that's about it. Experienced travelers crossing this line would know to expect a brief change as they cross the line, and they know that their readings are going to be off. So, yes, compasses can be weird in the Bermuda Triangle, but anyone who has any experience at all traveling shouldn't really be impacted by that. See, I think here's the thing for me. Having a line on the globe where compasses get wonky is cool, right? It's metal as heck. I love it. It's just the fact that as soon as it becomes science, we all go, well, you know, it is pretty standard. And we like say it in our boring voices <laughs> instead of like our like our campfire mythology voices where we're like, well, you know, there is a line on the globe where like maybe we all just have to say it cool. There we go. I like that because it is cool. There is a line on this earth in which magnetic north and geographic north are aligned and it causes weird stuff to happen. That's cool. That's cool. And and honestly, tell me it's not magic. I'm sorry. Tell me it's not. I won't because like, it is. It, I think there's this conception rightly because people are trying to make a are trying to differentiate them with good reason that like science is one thing and like magic is another. Yeah. Science has evidence and like magic doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. But also sometimes science is magic. Yeah. Like we all took chemistry where the teacher was like, I'm going to be cool. And they, you know, poured a chemical in another chemical and it changed to a crazy color or, you know, they made that like foam bubble mm-hmm. up and become a worm. Like that's kind of magic. It is. What is. Isn't there a quote that says, uh, all magic is just science we don't yet understand? Ooh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. Or any, it's something like anything that looks like magic is just science we haven't explored or any good science will look like magic until you understand it. Something like that. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That famous quote by that, that guy. That famous quote by that famous person, obviously. <laughs> anyway, moving on. People have theorized all sorts of paranormal explanations for the Bermuda Triangle. One explanation pins the blame on leftover technology from the mythical lost continent of Atlantis. Thank you. Yeah, you got it. (laughs) Sometimes connected to the Atlantis story is the submerged rock formation known as the Bimini Road, which is in Mm -hmm. the triangle by some of the definitions. The Bimini Road, which Rowan is nodding because she knows already, is a rock formation found underwater near, you guessed it, Bimini Island. While the square stones do look like they form a long underwater road, it's more likely that these are just natural rock formations and not, as some theorize, a road to Atlantis. Because, and say it with me, friends, Atlantis isn't real. I will not. There are many (laughs) things in this world that we cannot explain, but Atlantis isn't one of them. You can listen to our episode on it to find out more. It's so funny that, like, if a if someone at a party is talking about Atlantis, it is my absolute favorite thing in the world to roll up and just drop on them how not real it is and how it's just like political satire. And the second we're sitting down for this podcast, I'm like, I will not agree to that. You cannot make me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just being being the uh, what's what is the word? Contrarian. For Thank you. Being a contrarian just for the sake of it. Asshole, depending on who you ask. <laughs> okay, Rowan. So this one's interesting. Some people hypothesize that there's a parallel universe within the Bermuda Triangle, 
causing time mm-hmm. and space to warp and it sucks objects around it into a parallel universe. Well, other people just go with a more tried and true UFO explanation. They believe that a, a the Bermuda Triangle is actually just a landing spot for aliens who live under the ocean. Right. So many theories exist to explain the strange phenomena of the Bermuda Triangle, including human error, bad weather, and even the Gulf Stream. But one of the most popular explanations has to do with methane gas. No. Wikipedia explains that the disappearances could have been caused by, quote, large fields of methane hydrates, a form of natural gas on the continental shelves. Laboratory experiments carried out in Australia have proven that bubbles can, indeed, sink a scale model ship by decreasing the density of the water, and Mm. any wreckage would be deposited on the ocean floor or rapidly dispersed by the Gulf Stream. It has been theorized that periodic methane eruptions, sometimes called mud volcanoes, may produce regions of frothy water that are no longer capable of providing adequate buoyancy for ships. If this were the case... Such an area forming around a ship could cause it to sink very rapidly and without warning, end quote. However, some scientists believe that no large release of gas hydrates have occurred in the Bermuda Triangle for the past 15,000 years. 15,000? Yeah, 15,000 years. There's debate. But how scary is it to think that your water can just suddenly stop holding you? Yeah, losing buoyancy is really, really cool. It is so much less cool when you call it ocean flatulence yeah don't call this ocean farts it's eating ships yeah it immediately plummets by like a good 75 percent less cool yeah all right (laughs) rowan is anti-ocean fart (laughs) i'm pro methane bubble though (laughs) i am too i thought this was such a cool explanation i had to include it words matter (laughs) yes (laughs) So all in all, while I think the Bermuda Triangle is a really fun tale that we tell each other about a really spooky area and an even spookier ocean, I think it's just that. It's a tale. There's no scientific evidence or research to support any ideas of mysterious occurrences in this part of the world. Uh, In fact, as I mentioned earlier, the Bermuda Triangle isn't even in the top 10 most dangerous shipping routes in the world. It's just one of those topics where I was really certain the more I dig into it, the more there would be to find. But um, it turned out to be pretty explainable, which... While maybe disappointing on the mystery front, was actually really fun from a research front to to get the answers to some of these questions that appeared while I was looking into them. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But um, Rowan took on the challenge of writing this week, so I'm going to hand it back over to you. There is a discussion Tracy and I had that I will relay after my story because it was kind of funny. Um, (laughs) But uh, a quick content warning. This one's talking about chronic illness and suicide. It's not directly referenced, but, you know, take care of yourself. Uh, Okay. Let's go. I'd ask them, elation or agony? Humans want so badly to avoid suffering, they'll say over and over again, I do not want to struggle. Why is every day a fight? I want to be happy. No, you don't. Perpetual happiness is boring, at best, and criminal at worst. This is so obvious that even the most mundane among them will say, if the world were perfect, nothing would be perfect because there would be nothing to define imperfection. (laughs) It's like Eve and the apple. Her god says, 
You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But what is death to a child of Eden? She ate, and then she knew she was naked. Imagine being gorgeous and naked and eating fresh food and having sex with your sexy husband and running around paradise and never doing taxes or sitting in traffic or sweeping dust or stubbing your toe or breaking a bone or having an infection or going hungry or fearing a gun or losing your mind or watching your true love die and you don't even know how good you have it because you don't know that there's anything else to have. People do not want lives of elation. They want lives where the bad is not too bad and the good is as good as it gets. And the people who have wronged them are always one step lower on the ladder so they can look down their noses at dinner and say, Well, our life isn't perfect, but at least it's better than theirs. I made paradise as a symbol of fear for those worry-filled devotees. The ones who wonder if I am good, really good, the kind of good that's so good that I label everyone else as bad. If my God loves me the way I don't love me, and I die and go to paradise, is it really paradise if little Billy Barton, who broke up with me because I wouldn't put out because I am good, if I am good, if I am so, so good, and he spends eternity suffering in the fiery pits of hell, can I really be happy in paradise? Well, honey, the irony is that guy has to suffer for paradise to be good for you, but boy, oh boy, isn't that a beautiful fear that will follow you through your whole miserable life. I love it when they spend their entire lives, wanting the little symbol I invented to enact their misery. It keeps things fun. I built all kinds of symbols in their world. Some humans think symbols are only letters and numbers and all their little shapes and signs, but many understand the reality of the situation. A symbol is one thing that represents another. Paradise is a grand other perfect place that is aspirational. It means that all someone's life can be added up and that the goodness will amount to a reward. Nah, symbols are tools. They're brilliant, beautiful tools of communication and fear. Paradise says, what if you're bad? What if? I made darkness, and they say, what if there's a monster out there? I made monsters, like my kraken or my wars, and they say, what if it gets me? And sometimes, I do let it get them. And it's scary. It's very, very scary. But they don't understand that, and they love to be afraid. They love to suffer but only a little bit. Please, I only want to be a little hungry, a little sick. I don't want to starve. I don't want to die. 
Those are the humans who've never experienced anything chronic. When something is chronic, it is persistent. It occurs over and over and over again for a long, long time. There is chronic pain, chronic illness, chronic overcrowding, chronic loneliness, chronic poverty, chronic debt, chronic stress, chronic anxiety. The thing is, when something is chronic, it means it isn't bad enough yet. No one has alighted upon a solution, or worse, no one has decided that the situation is bad enough to warrant the need for a change. Choose one. Ache or agony. If you gave a human the choice, most would say ache every time, but they ought to ask the duration of the suffering before they answer. You see, within the bounds of their little world, agony usually portends destruction. We might bend the rules and, in a sort of mythological act, extend agony, but that's not the standard, not anymore. Traditionally, the worst pain is the shortest pain. Or the last pain, the stab, the shot, the bite, the impact. Mm, but aching. Aching can go on forever. For as long as the human lifespan will allow, I can extend an ache. Just a terrible pain that is most terrible because it isn't terrible enough. And there, God forbid, they go to the doctor and the test results come back showing nothing. And the doctor tells them that there isn't any pain at all and they've made it up. And have they considered going for a walk? I think that's my favorite of the ways to invite humans to suffer. So, can I tell you about my favorite symbol? It may be my own personal paradise. There is a place called the Bermuda Triangle, as the humans say. It is a portion of the sea, of varying size depending on who you ask, where bad things happen and people go missing. Some of the humans say it is not real, and to that I would respond, Richard, dear, you said I wasn't real. And yet you were so afraid that you aren't worthy of love that you stay in a marriage with a woman who is cheating on you. And her behavior does not change no matter how much you try to tell yourself she's faithful. You can still be affected by things that you don't believe in. <sighs> I've given myself this triangle as a sort of gift. Here I do what the rules of the mortal world would not traditionally allow. It's like all the fun you've been having down at the South Pole of all places, you sly dog. So, this place began as a sort of net. Occasionally, I would 
just reach out a hand in the form of a dense fog or radio transmission error, and I trap ships of all sorts in my triangle. By now, I have planes, steamships, and sailing vessels of all kinds all swirling in my doldrums. Now, I know what you're thinking. That I would keep them in perpetual storms or drown them over and over in a sort of Sisyphean dunk tank. I used to do that. Feed them to my fishes. But that was agony. It was over so quickly. They screamed and shouted and fought for their lives, and then chomp. They were swallowed up by one of the big ones with the tentacles. <laughs> then I tried... The storms really tried. The storms, they lasted longer, but their ships are so flimsy. And then they all felt heroic. And the suffering didn't taste the same. So I calmed the winds and the waters. Smooth sailing became too smooth. Sailing became no sailing at all. Once they started burning up all the ancient beasts for fuel and flying through the air. I had to come up with more ways to catch them. You know how it is. But eventually, eventually, I had my own little soup of suffering. And truly, I say this with as much humility as I can muster, it is a beautiful sight to behold. There are thousands of people floating around my triangle. The water is glass smooth. The fog is thick and complete, and they are shrouded in both light and its lack as they drift around. I do not feed them. They have no energy, but do not starve to death. I offer them no entertainment, no miracle monster, no breath of wind to even rustle their hair. It is all, in every experience, chronic. <laughs> there is no resistance either. They can sit, stand, swim, speak, and nothing will impede them. The wind is so calm so as to hardly exist. There's hardly a molecule to press against them as they move. Can you imagine perpetual but incomplete suffocation? Just enough air to know that you have no air. It is the reverse of paradise. Just enough good to know that things are very very bad. That's what I want you to understand. The opposite of Eve's Eden is not hell. Hell is entirely too bad. In that place, the humans beg for salvation. They hope their god will forgive them. In my playpen, they hope for hell but are too hopeless even to beg. The opposite of paradise is limbo. You should go look. <laughs> Drifting around, there are sailors from the golden age of piracy bumping their ships into naval officers on some of the first steamships the world has ever seen. They don't even look up. 
to the soft sounds of their hulls meeting. They don't even attempt to steer. The vessels might as well be empty of sailors. The humans sit or stand or perhaps even attempt to lie in the cramped cockpits of their planes, and they look out into the mist knowing that everything around them is chronic. Mm. Chronic fog. Chronically becalmed. Chronically hungry. Chronically awake. <laughs> I tell you, in my collection, the humans don't even blink. But once a century, their fingers crack. When they remember to move them, their eyes are dry, but not enough. Their limbs are stiff, but not stiff enough. Everything aches, but they are trapped, and their hope is so quickly run out, and things aren't bad enough. <laughs> Do you know what happens when a person is beyond hope and prayer? Beyond even thinking or feeling? I don't let them die. And they cannot drown, so don't be silly. Imagine what comes beyond the furthest misery you can imagine when it is all so terrible that there's no good to judge by, so everything isn't really that bad at all. What comes then? Do you know? Stop playing with your money. Who let you teach them that paper had any value anyway? You're a child. Go see what I've built of these lost souls. You speak to me of heaven, but haven't the sense to build a proper hell. You look upon my Bermuda Triangle and then stop dicking around with apples and snakes. <laughs> you look like a fool. Okay, I love so much about this piece. The idea that it's a god talking to another god reminds me of the Nana Buluku episode when we talked about her kind of giving over to the next generation. Yeah. Um, it has that energy, but very almost uh, almost par parental or authoritative in the sense of like, hey, stop messing around, get it together, focus, this is how you do things. The other thing that I really loved that I had to note was the line just enough air to know that you have no air just enough good to know that things are very very bad it hit so hard and so real the way you captured sustained dull wearing down of hope was so beautiful here just that feeling of reaching a point where you don't realize you've walked a billion steps and you turn around and you're like, oh my God, I've come so far, but I have so far to go. I feel like I haven't moved anywhere. What's the point of trying that exhaustion? Brilliant. I mean, so brilliant. This is incredible. Thanks. You know, I, I called you and I was like, my story only lightly has to do with the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> and <laughs> and thank goodness, you know, you're very understanding. And that's kind of the point of the podcast, I guess, to just riff wherever the riffs are to be had. Yeah. But you and I talk a lot about chronic illness. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you and I have experienced things being chronic. We have a lot of friends and family who experience it. And I think it is so, so brutal to be in pain or to be sick, but you're there all the time so it doesn't count anymore. Yeah. 
it's something you and I have talked about a lot, the idea of um, when you're kind of a little sick or, or a little hurt all the time, it makes it feel like you're not allowed to be really sick or really hurt without it being for attention because you're, you know, you're always complaining about something and now you're extra complaining and then there's this guilt and it's, it sucks because like I'm someone who, who has a lot of chronic pain and definitely struggle with who can I tell when, well you know I get migraines too and at work I get so scared that people are going to think I'm faking migraines mm. just to get out of work mm. when I'm you know functionally not present and can't see out of an eye and all of that stuff so so this was really impactful from that point of view yeah I think I always say it as if you're always sick you're never sick and mm-hmm. that's like so tragic I uh <laughs> I I experienced recently uh, when I was at a con, like I got sick first because I have a bad immune system, of course. And then Mm -hmm. someone else that I was with was sick. And so we like got to take time off and they're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, I'm so grateful because if you're sick, then I get to be sick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If someone else who's never sick gets sick, then it's really serious. But if someone who's always a little sick gets sick, then they're just playing it up for attention. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And I I think that like one of the things that I fear more than anything, having spent a lot of time in hospitals, is not like dying in a big painful death. It's not dying and having it be slow and terrible and being stuck. Yeah. Uh, Because it takes a body a very long time to die uh, of sort of what we consider to be more like the natural consequences, right? Like not a major mm-hmm. a major illness or not a big impact or like when it is maybe cancer, but it's not like the cancer that gets you really fast. It's that right. slow kind of decline. Uh, I've heard a lot of nurse phrases is like bodies have to figure out that they're dying. Your mom said that to to both of us, but oh, you yeah. know, when we had that she conversation. Does say that. Yeah, we talked about how um she said to me, you know, keep in mind that the body doesn't want to die. It's not used to that. It's mm-hmm. used to, you know, breathing, pumping the heart, these things that we don't actively think about that it, like you said, it has to figure out how to shut down. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty bleak. And I think that that is, that is suffering. That's how I imagine suffering to be. Like that just never good enough. Mm-hmm. You, you can't find it. You can't name it. Or you can, but it's still not – like it's not going to really count. It's not big. It's not bad, especially I think as a woman who's dealt with healthcare, where it's like you have to you have to really earn it if you're going to get pain medication, you oh, know? yeah. <laughs> I mean the perfect example is me actively trying not to go to the hospital when I had a bilateral pulmonary embolism because I didn't think it was – I was in enough pain to justify going to the hospital because I'd had period cramps that were worse <sighs> and finally having someone – who later, years later, told me, uh, Tim, who was the one who took me to the hospital, told me if I wasn't able to walk down the stairs, he was ready to call an ambulance. As Meanwhile, I'm actively telling him, I don't think I need to go to the ER. We can just call my doctor about it. <sighs> and he's like, no, we're not doing that. And thank, thank God he didn't let me just wait around and find out because it could have been really bad. But to me, I'm like, well, I, I thought you had to be unable to stand up in order to, to go to the ER. And I, I could stand up. 
Well, like, also, <laughs> the things that lay some people flat on their back would not lay you flat on their back. Right, right. And that's something that I, I learned because I'm cracking jokes with the nurses and like all the stuff. And they're like, okay, that's great. Um, We're going to give you some morphine about this because you shouldn't be functioning. My <laughs> new favorite question is if a doctor does the like on a scale of one to 10, what is your pain? I now always go, are we doing a woman's 10 or a man's 10? Ooh, that's good. That's good. Which like, I mean, to some men, because I know a lot of men who deal with very serious pain that is a little bit belittling but like i watch all those videos now where they do the simulated period pain for men i want to try one of those so badly i know i want to know how bad it is it's like is is it that bad yeah is it that bad how close it how close is it to the real feeling too is what i want to know yeah i'm fascinated but i i think because that i fear that and that is my own personal hell and it is unsavory I like to imagine, a, in this case, a deity that really savors it. Mm, like, this yeah. is a treat for me. <laughs> then it's at least for something or for someone. It's fun to imagine what their machinations are. So I love that. This was awesome. This was – I don't care that it was only tangentially related to the Bermuda Triangle. I'm grateful that it was related at all because I got to experience it. And then one thing that I, I guess I wanted to add before we wrap up the episode is this piece is really inspired by The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot because I think it's it's worthwhile in the current internet climate in the art community where people are very concerned about like credit and stealing, in some cases mm-hmm. rightfully so, and in some cl- cases overzealously so, to acknowledge influences because mm-hmm. art is always in conversation with other art. And I don't mean influences in that sort of panicked way where you have to be like, this influenced me and this influenced me. Please don't get mad at oh, me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Based on the works of. Right. Yeah. But that the, kind of that I, as a person who is creative, once consumed this. And now you, if you know it also, you may see it reflected in my work. Mm-hmm. And – this is the poem that has a very famous quote in it, uh, but I will kind of read the lead up. It's a longer poem than this, but this is the section that specifically in, uh, helped to inspire this piece. Um, between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow, for thine is the kingdom, between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response, falls the shadow. Life is very long between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence and the descent falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom, for thine is life is, for thine is the... This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang but with a whimper. I think about that, the this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, mm-hmm. but with a whimper, maybe once a week, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you and I have both been fans of T.S. Eliot for mm, ever. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. I, I have always connected this poem with you. Like, it's just one of those things I, I've always thought of you with the this is the way the world ends not with the bang but with the whimper and you're the love song of j alfred proofrock of course yes yes yes. um 
so I love getting to see the way that this was reflected in your story, uh, both in the a little bit in the way of the the listing of things that you did in the story, like the way things repeated and kept going and were always like three or four items past the normal length of a list. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, love that. Thank you. <laughs> Second of all. <laughs> Someone's is a little um, obsessive. Yeah, yeah. That's how it felt. It felt like it felt um, in another story, it could have felt like an excited way to share. And it didn't feel like an excited way to share. It felt like a way to poke, uh, a way to like antagonize. Yeah, it makes me so sad that it's so true that the world ends with a whimper, usually. Like, like it very often is that people die in a, in a very slow, sad descent. And, like, things that are beautiful, that are made, very often fall apart slowly. Right. Uh, and not just sort of all at once. And relationships often fall apart very slowly. Yeah. And I uh, to me, I'm okay with that. But that's like, I don't love things ending with a bang. I love, um, I think when things end with a bang, I, I feel it very acutely because then the thing becomes the ending as opposed to when things fade slowly, you get to enjoy a much broader swath of that experience because the mm. ending isn't, isn't particularly painful or noteworthy. It is not the experience. It is not fundamental to what happened. So I'm a big fan of like, letting things fade or slowly die or just gently depart your life. I think if we frame it as not with a bang, but gently has a very different feeling than like not with a bang, but with a whimper, because obviously the whimper implies like giving up and, and falling or failing or wilting. It implies that it hurts. Yeah. It's just not the same as like with a bang implies like this is the right way. This is the powerful way, the strong way, the, the correct way. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm going to stand by whimper. I'm going to stand by gently letting things softly exit your your life. Y'all, if you want to understand some of Tracy's frame of reverence, read the love song of J. Alfred <laughs> Prufrock because that is that poem is that. <laughs> yes. If you want to understand me as a person, so much of it is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock um, because that poem in particular is where I think people lose it is they think that it's just T.S. Eliot talking to the reader, and it's not. It's T.S. Eliot writing from the internal monologue of this mm. man named J. Alfred Prufrock, who's at a party, and while he's at the party, he can't help but just, like, fall into his own mind and freak out about stuff, and then, like, snaps back into the reality of the party and, like, thinks about where he is for a second before then falling away into his own thoughts. What's the That's quote my pitch. that you have from oh. it? Tattooed <laughs> on you, huh? The quote that I have tattooed on me is the line, do I dare disturb the universe, which comes from the broader section, do I dare disturb the universe, in a minute there is time for decisions and revisions that a minute will reverse. I I think almost from that poem of just the one sentence of I have measured out my life with coffee spoons, coffee spoons. which is how many ways could you measure your life that are smaller than you think? Because like how many coffees have we enjoyed? It was so such a toss up between those two lines <laughs> for Girl, me I getting know. a tattoo. <laughs> I know because Rowan Rowan got all the like, should I do this font or this font or this thing or that thing? Um, I love that quote too because it, exactly what you said. It's like how many teeny tiny ways can I measure my impact and and my existence and put value to it or put a number to it or put you know ma- have it make a measurable impact because that feels like it has to be the most important thing. 
All I'm saying is the musical theater girlies will do 125,600 minutes. Okay, fine. But the literary mm-hmm. girlies <laughs> will measure out their life in coffee spoons like a patient <laughs> etherized upon a table. Truly, I love you so much. <laughs> I want you to speak that out like bad spoken word music, like when people turn <laughs> a song into a bad poem. <laughs> Or like when someone speaks in like Japanese with a southern accent. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? To its crisis? For indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back on the window panes. There will be time. There will be time. To prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you, and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. God, I love this poem so much. Imagine if we tried to read it well. (laughs) (laughs) I don't Uh know what reading it well would look like, and I'm scared to find out. I feel like we just learned a lot about the kind of people we are. Like, not to be, (laughs) not to observe myself while being myself. (laughs) Oh, I do that all the time. (laughs) uh, Truly the femme experience. But, like... This was supposed to be an episode about the Bermuda Triangle, and we are talking about the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Tell me how. (laughs) If there is anything that sums up both you and I and this podcast, it's starting with the Bermuda Triangle and ending with T.S. Eliot. That is such a T.S. Eliot tattoo girl thing to say. (laughs) Oh, my God. Am I a T.S. Eliot tattoo girly? (laughs) (laughs) Tumblr core 2014. Oh, my God. What twee? Is that the term for it? Oh, God. I don't know. That just felt so reductive. I can't even deal with that. (laughs) Well, instead of dealing with that, why don't you tell me something good? My something good is so basic. Um, I went to this (laughs) gluten-free or this vegan restaurant in West Hollywood. It's called Pura Vita. I hope I said that right. But they have a lot of gluten-free things. It's all Italian food. Uh, So I got to have pasta, which is right away bananas. I got to have ricotta cheese, (gasps) cashew ricotta, which is also bananas. And then at the end of the meal with the dessert, I got to have Nutella, like vegan Nutella. Oh, my God. That sounds so good. I know. And it has a – I have a little – you know those take-home like ketchup containers that you get from Mm -hmm. restaurants that has just a little bit of leftover Nutella. The fact that I asked for a to-go container for this amount of Nutella is frankly shameful. (laughs) The way I am going to eat that on a spoon with no other thing that goes with it. Yeah, it's just a little treat. Oh, and it's in my fridge. And First of all, if you don't like regular Nutella, you don't understand why I'm so excited. And if you are not lactose intolerant you also Mm -hmm. don't understand i could have wept oh that is so like cozy and yummy that's amazing 
I'm so happy for you. Thank you. And I love pasta so much. And I'm hesitant to say this because I don't actually know the correct Italian pronunciation. Trace, maybe you can correct me, but I had maybe cacio e pepe or cacio e pepe. That's my favorite dish, cacio e pepe. That's my favorite. It's like, it feels like grown up mac and cheese. It's buttery. It's Parmesan cheesy and it's peppery. And in in my case, because it was dairy-free, I think there was a higher amount of lemon flavor, like lemon Mm. zest, because it was Mm -hmm. honestly making up for the fact that it's not going to give you as much creaminess bang for the buck. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, it was so good. I, the way I could have become one of those lick the bowl people. (laughs) I get it. I had my favorite... Cacio e Pepe at this little old lady's restaurant in Italy. And I'm going to be thinking about that pasta every single day of my life until the day that I die. And it's not at a lot of Italian restaurants because um, someone was telling me who grew up also with an Italian grandparent that it's considered like a home dish. Yeah. It's not usually like a fancy eat out kind of dish. Yeah. It's so simple. It's truly (laughs) Italian food coming from a meat and potatoes family. Purely. Uh, there's something about Italian food that when it is good, th- there is not language for how good it is. It just hits <laughs> different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on it. It's like my ultimate comfort foods because my mom, when she didn't know what to cook, would just make spaghetti. I was just going to say I have very specific memories about your mom making so much really good spaghetti for when there were a lot of friends over at your house. Mm-hmm. All right. Enough about my food love. Uh, Tracy, tell me something good. Mine is also food. Oh, yes. Mine. Good, good, good. <laughs> Mine is there is this place that I found sort of near me. It's like a a couple towns over that is the most amazing little cafe bubble tea and dessert place mm. where they make the most delicious desserts. And they're not that sweet. So you have this mm. lemon dessert with a crunchy lemon shell with a lemon mousse inside in the shape of a lemon and painted to look like a lemon. I mean, it looks like you're at a French patisserie. And I was talking to the owner because I couldn't get over how delicious the lemon dessert was because it was actually lemony enough. Yes, not fake lemon, real lemon. Yes. And he said they sit there and they squeeze out every single lemon and they put it in every part of the dessert. And the the time and care he took in making all of these desserts was incredible. So I am thrilled that I found this place, but it's also very dangerous because it's a really cute cafe I can go work at and then just get slices of delicious different flavored cakes all day. Are you kidding me? It's heaven. Will you send me pictures next time you go? Oh, absolutely. It's the cutest decor too, of course. The amount of money that I will shell out for a stupid over-the-top little mocktail or like one custom piece of really good chocolate Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to the shops and they have uh, like, you know, you pick out the chocolates to go in the box, but each chocolate is maybe like three or four dollars because they're, oh yes, you know, they're a whole thing and they're hand painted uh-huh. often. It's just so fun having a, a dessert that feels like it was designed to make every bite an experience. Yeah. That's what this place feels like. I mean, they've got cute little chocolate cakes that are shaped like teddy bears. And <laughs> the mango dessert is, is painted and shaped like a mango. Like, it's just it, – it looks like something you'd see on an, uh, a viral video on TikTok. And then it was just – my sister just found it while looking for dessert places one night. I just found out that a friend of mine has a Meyer lemon tree in her front yard. And I wish I could send you lemons when they're 
ready to be picked because I know you could do beautiful things with it. Because she said she'd give me lemons. And I'm like, I'm not worthy. I'm just going to squeeze this in water. <laughs> <laughs> hey, as you should, as is your right. That's uh, uh, Lemon water is my favorite. Those lemons are so beautiful. It's intimidating. <laughs> They're so yellow. Yes. And she doesn't yes. do a thing for this tree. Other than water it occasionally. Like, I'm sure that tree is thriving because of that. It's not being like poked and prodded and all that. I'm looking at myself and my own plants. Do you think we're hungry? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time for us to go get some food, which means it's time for me to thank you all so much for joining us today. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. We're going to start with Is this the, the part where I'm going to shut the f up and not say anything or is this not that part? <laughs>